What's up? It's Dr. Christopher Ryan coming at you from the studios of KCPR here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, How's everybody doing? It's been a nice day here. I was planning to do this podcast about six hours ago, but uh, there are trucks and bulldozers in front of my house all fucking day, so it was impossible to record anything. So now the sun has set, the construction workers have gone home, and here we are. Um, A lot to get to today. Uh, First of all, you know, I I sort of been doing this thing, giving people advice, answering emails. Today, I thought I'd give some blanket advice, okay? Women, do not get breast implants. Unless you're looking at like reconstructive surgery or something. I've got a close friend, got some breast implants a while ago. Everything seemed to be fine. Then they started getting some uh, fibrosis, some encapsulation, it's called, where scar tissue forms around the implant. Your body's trying to sort of build a wall between this foreign object and the rest of you. And uh, she went in to have that removed, and that's when the trouble started. The doctor who was removing this material uh, messed with her some nerves, She had some serious pain when she was recovering, didn't know what was going on, led to muscle atrophy, led to skeletal problems, led to more nervous system problems. And so here we are years later, and this woman is still dealing with the repercussions of that. Um, It happens. It happens quite a lot. You don't hear about it, but it does. And I know there are people who are saying, yeah, but the techniques are better now. The materials are better now. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, they are. But I got to tell you, I I really think that things like breast implants are um, more often than not a physical attempt to address a psychological issue. Um, and the world's full of that, right? Life is full of those sorts of things uh, where we try to make a whole bunch of money because we feel inadequate in some way or we get breast implants or, God help us, we uh, you know tr- take pills or get fat injected into our penis or you know whatever to try to make your dick bigger. It ain't about your dick. It's not about your tits. It's not about your bank account. It's about you, right? It's about your fears, your sense of inadequacy, your inability or unwillingness to confront your demons head on. That's what's causing the problems here. And fixing your tits, bigger tits, bigger dick, bigger bank account, none of that's going to solve your problem. It's going to cause you other problems, very likely. So anyway... Speaking of dicks, okay, I've given women advice. Here's the advice to the men. Do not ever send a woman a picture of your dick, 
unless she's asked for it specifically, unless she has said, please send me a photo of your dick, unless those words are in the email or the phone call or whatever, don't do it. Nobody wants to see your fucking dick. How many dicks have you seen in the locker room, in whatever, that you think are beautiful? I mean, okay, I'm a straight man. Maybe I'm not the guy to ask about this, but I don't think dicks are very pretty. Um, you know, the only, and I can't really understand why people send other people pictures of their dicks. I mean, the the only thing I can think of is that, uh, you know, like as a boy, your dick is probably, uh, the source of a lot of, um, pleasure and wonder. I mean, you can write your name in the snow with it. You can, uh, you know, when you get older, you get, holy cow, there's a lot of interesting stuff that starts happening. So you're fascinated by it and you just sort of assume everyone else must be too. <clears throat> Fundamental mistake right there. Uh, just because something's beautiful to you doesn't mean it's beautiful to anyone else. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like you know, w- women who say, oh, isn't that baby beautiful? I've never seen a beautiful baby. To me, babies look like, um, you know, they were born a year or two too early. You know, you look at other animals, kittens, puppies, you know, uh, fawns, little colts, you know, whatever. They're born. They're sort of within a couple hours. They're walking around. You know, they're, they've got their fur. They've got, you know, all their parts are in working order. And they're kind of just like little horses or deer or dogs or whatever they are. Humans, it's like, what the fuck is that? That's not even a human yet. You know, and actually a lot of uh, societies, hunter-gatherer societies, don't consider infants to be humans. They're not humans until they speak. Uh, I kind of go with that. I mean, I don't know, that mewling, puking, shitting little thing that can't see, can't move. That's not beautiful. So I don't know. To me, you know, a dick pic is like a baby picture. I don't know. Neither one of them work for me. So, uh Anyway, don't send pictures of your dicks and don't get breast implants. I mean, unless you is a, there's a medical reason, a lot of dudes, I'll tell you, a lot of dudes love small breasts. Uh and a lot of uh a lot of dudes are really turned off by fake breasts. So, think about that. It's not just a question of small versus larger, it's real versus uh, augmented. So keep that in mind when you're making these decisions, ladies and gentlemen. All right, enough of, enough of that. Quick shout out to Chris in your shed in Iowa. Thanks for your email, buddy. And uh, it's nice to be there with you. Uh, to this week, I've, I'm going to play a few things from from people people have sent in. Cormac sent in a mashup. Here it is. To me, sex is like music, right? It can be a, you know, Bach in a cathedral and it's fucking, you know, mind-blowing and it's the closest thing to the ethereal heaven that we'll ever have. Ever have. Or it can be the Rolling Stones in Philadelphia in a Coliseum. I've been driving cab in Philadelphia 15 years. When the Stones come in, they just turn everybody on. 
People need turning on. The music just turns me on. She is so super sexy. Dion Fort? Yeah, Dion yeah, Fort. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're wild. What's the, the big hit? Baby on fire. Baby also. on fire. If you were in, in, in hell and you were laying in mud and a giant demon came loping by, Bieber would be its puckered demonic asshole spraying out supernatural diarrhea into the world. If I was your Thank you for that, Cormac Symington. Crazy, bizarre. For those of you who didn't recognize his voice, that was uh, the great Duncan Trussell at the end of that talking about, uh, I guess, Justin Bieber as a monster's demonic asshole or something like that, as only Duncan Trussell can do. You should definitely check him out. I don't imagine I have many listeners who don't know who Duncan is, but If you don't, you want to check out the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. It's the first podcast I was ever on back when I had no clue what a podcast was. And it was Duncan who convinced me to do this. And for those of you who are fans of The Shrimp Parade, which is a series of podcasts that I did together with Duncan and the great Joe Rogan for a while... Uh, We might be doing another one. Uh, We're going to be in L.A. in February and... Um, we're trying to get together uh, Duncan and Joe and me to to do another episode of the Shrimp Parade. So we'll see if that comes together. I'll let you know uh, once we've got it confirmed, but that's in the works. And uh, okay, one other thing I wanted to talk about today before we get to our guest. Somebody sent me a link to a YouTube um, performance of an original song by a guy named Bobby Lee. I don't even remember who it was, how I got it. But anyway, I clicked on something, and next thing you know, I was watching this guy Bobby Lee playing his original song. uh, In looks like he's in his office in front of a microphone, same microphone I'm speaking into at the moment. And um, uh, it's it's a song that he's submitted to the NPR Tiny Desk original song contest or something. I hope I'm not too late to help him out because it's a great song, really well performed, just beautiful from the heart. So I'm going to play the song for you. I got in touch with him. He sent me an MP3. I'm going to play the song for you. And uh, if anyone out there from NPR is listening, hey, vote. Give give this guy a vote or whatever the hell you have to do to win that contest because this is a really nice song. So this is – you can see it yourself. Just go to YouTube and – um, you know, do a search in between the lantern, it's called. And the guy singing it, who wrote it and playing the guitar is Mr. Bobby Lee. And uh hope you enjoy it. He's got, hold on now, I'm just pulling up a note here from his email. He said, okay, he doesn't really have a website, but he's got Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Mr. M-Y-S-T-E-R Hill. Or uh, ReverbNation.com slash Bobby Lee Hill. So if you want to send him some props or buy some of his music or whatever, that would be the way to get in touch with him. Okay, here's Bobby Lee playing In Between the Lantern.
could be a willow tree and you couldn't be a breeze it would be nice i think if you blew in and slowly ran your fingers through me it would be a mystery the kind without a clue to lead them on they would leave us to our own devices i've been taking this automaton apart him now to hold you in his arms oh and what if he lets go one day or presses down too hard i'm afraid he'll break your heart if you were just a silhouette I was just a candle I would burn myself up at both ends to meet you in between the lantern it would just be chemistry nothing left of me could fuel the flame for them and they would never see our shadows dancing I've been teaching this automaton to sing and I I've dressed him in a few of my old things So maybe he could be for you what I could never be But there's a vital missing piece He is just wood He just acts, he doesn't think He is just wood and strength He just walks and talks and doesn't mean anything He is just wood and strength He never sleeps and he doesn't I could be a satellite, you could be the body I would circle around every day, locked and always looking at you. It would just be gravity that holds us like a promise made to break. What promises are added weight, so I've been seeing this automaton all along.
Bobby Lee, Between the Lantern. This week's guests are um, the authors of a new book that's just come out, and it's um, it's a book I've been aware of for quite a while. I uh, met with them when they were first thinking about writing the book or talking about getting together and writing this book. Uh, it's a, a book called More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory, and it's by uh, Franklin Vo, V-E-A-U-X, and Eve Rickert. It's, uh, you can find out more about the book at uh, morethan2.com. And well, you can imagine why they approach me. It's, you know, Sex at Dawn sort of touches on polyamory. And a lot of people have um, mistakenly assumed that Casilda and I are, are spokespeople for polyamory or something. And it's been something that's come up in pretty much every interview I've, I've ever done, which is well into the hundreds by now. You know, there always comes the point where I'm asked, so are you guys polyamorous? Are you swingers? You have an open relationship, whatever. And before the book even came out, Cassie and I talked about how we were going to deal with this. Because to me, it's kind of like, you know, if I wrote a book, a a scientific book um, explaining why uh, homosexual behavior is not in any way... uh, a problem uh, from a biological perspective and, you know, looking at primates and, and anthropological data and all the kind of stuff that we looked at in Sex at Dawn and concluded that, hey, same-sex interaction is completely um, common and normal and doesn't really present any challenge to biological evolutionary theory or whatever, which, by the way, is something that is part of Sex at Dawn um, because we argue that sexual behavior is primarily about establishing relationships and intimacy and trust and bonding and all that in human beings. And so there's no reason that doesn't work as well between two men or two women or whatever, right? So it's not about reproduction um, in human beings. Anyway, you've you've all heard me say that a million times or read it, or if not, go watch the TED Talk. That, that gets into that pretty succinctly. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we didn't want to be considered spokespeople or advocates for any particular way of dealing with this information. So it's kind of like if I had written that book uh, and people say, well, are you gay? Well, look, there's nothing wrong with being gay, obviously, from my perspective, you know, if I wrote this book. But whether I'm gay or not really doesn't fucking matter, right? Because what we're talking about here is a scientific argument. And you take the argument separate from whomever um, – is behind it. Whoever wrote the argument, whoever came up with the argument shouldn't matter at all because the argument stands or falls on its own merits. Um, so what we, uh, the answer that we've used or I've used in, in all these interviews is, <clears throat> and I think the first person I ever used it with was Dan Savage on his podcast. He asked me if we were in an open relationship and I said, our relationship is informed by our research. And he laughed his ass off and he said, that's fantastic. That's great. I'm going to use that answer from now on myself. When people ask me if uh, Terry and I have an open relationship, I'm going to say, our relationship is informed by Chris Ryan and Casilda Jetta's research. <laughs> I don't think he does that necessarily, but uh, yeah, he got a laugh out of that. So, 
This all brings us back to this week's guest. Um, they wrote this book, More Than Two, which is a practical guide to how to handle polyamory. Because one of the big complaints about Sex at Dawn is, okay, you you like lay out why monogamy is so hard, and you basically say it's almost impossible for our species without you know a lot of frustration and difficulty and so on. But you don't tell us what to do about it. Now, that was a conscious decision on our part. Yeah, we're not going to tell you what to do about it because we don't know what to do about it, right? It's That's a really tough decision. How old are you? What kind of relationship do you have? How long have you been together? Do you have kids? Are you economically dependent on each other? You know, are, what's your religious background? Are you going to, you know, will your family freak out if you make these changes or open up your relationship? You know, how do you... I, I think it's impossible to tell anyone else how to deal with this information because it's so personal. And you might deal with it one way this week and uh, six months from now, you might deal with it in a completely different way, right? Maybe you get pregnant. Well, okay, I'm pregnant. I don't want you fucking other people while I'm pregnant. Yeah, that freaks me out. I feel vulnerable. Okay, you got to like deal. A relationship is an organic thing. So – we, uh, you know, we don't offer any advice uh, as to what you should do in your relationship. We just sort of lay it out. This is the nature of the species, and this is why, you know, this is why we believe the things we believe here. This is how we got to our conclusions, and what you do with it is up to you. Anyway, more than two is a book that approaches this stuff and 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 addresses these issues. Now, it sort of starts with the premise that, okay, you, you've decided you want to open up your relationship, right? And again, nobody's saying that's what you should do. But if you decide to do that or you just want to think about how would this work, this is a good book for you to read. Um, it's a very practical, step-by-step, non-judgmental sort of guidebook for how to enter this world if you decide you want to or even if you just want to think about it a little bit. Uh, They go through myths about polyamory, the do's and don'ts, social fallacies, the the things people believe, you know, like that polyamorous are, you know, in orgies all the time, which isn't the case, I can tell you. Um, Or they, uh, you know, they think that even that polyamorous necessarily have more sex than anyone else. It's not about the sex, really. It's about the relationships. It's about integrity. You know, a lot of people get married knowing that they're not monogamous by nature. And either what they're saying to themselves is, okay, I'll make the sacrifice. I've had my fun. And it's worth it for me to have the security and safety and depth that I can have with this person and I'll give up, forsake all others, right, till death do us part. Or I think a lot of people enter into it saying, yeah, all right, I'll I'll sort of pretend that I believe I'm going to do this, but I'm not really going to do it. If, you know, an opportunity comes up and I'm out of town and no one will ever know. Yeah, of course I'm going to go for it, right? I think a lot of people enter into relationships with that sort of cutting themselves uh, a break. And what polyamorous say is, look, we do the same thing everyone else does. We just don't lie about it. 
So if you're tired of lying about it or you're, you know, you haven't gotten into that long-term relationship yet and you'd like to think about ways to do it that don't require lies and, um, you know, abandoning your integrity, this might be an interesting book for you to read. So I've talked enough. Thanks for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, You can always... You know, go to the website, uh, buy T-shirts and all that kind of stuff if you want to support the podcast. And you can also use our Amazon affiliate link on the homepage there. If you're going to buy stuff at Amazon, that always is nice to get a little a little taste at the end of the month from Amazon. Uh, there's a Reddit uh, community, tangentially speaking, one word. You can go on there, talk about episodes, guests, and I get in there. You can talk to me if you want. And thanks to Danny Osment, Emerald City Pro, for editing this stuff. Or not editing, what's he do? Mastering. Mastering the audio files. Okay. Without further ado, here's your guests, uh, the authors of More Than Two, Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert. <laughs> All right. Franklin just told you, I missed this on the sound check. I didn't record that, unfortunately. But Franklin just told us a really um, nerdy bust, uh, bacterium joke. or A bustle? microbiology joke. A microbiology yeah. joke, <laughs> which I didn't get. <clears throat> but I'm sure it was hilarious for the right kind of person. <laughs> or maybe my microbiome got it. My gut's <laughs> laughing in an uproar. I thought it was diarrhea. No. Um, okay, I'm here with uh, with Franklin. How do you pronounce your last name? Vo. Vo. V e a u x or something. Yes. When I was, uh, I think my ancestors way back when, when they got rich, they decided to invest all of their money in vowels. Vowels. <laughs> and then when literacy became a thing, the bottom fell out of their investment. So. Yeah. There you go. But that X must have cost them a pretty penny too. <laughs> yeah. And Eve Rickert. Rickert is yes, correct. Okay. That's right. Great. The, you are the authors of More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory. Uh, congratulations on getting this thing written, first of all. Because <laughs> I remember was, was we fun. had a coffee in Vancouver, mm-hmm. what, two years ago or something, yeah. and you guys had this idea to do this book. And I, at the time, already considered myself immersed in the writing of my book, your book is now published, out, reviewed, and selling very well, and my book is still up my ass somewhere. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. For actually birthing a book that I'm holding in my hand. That's Eve's doing. She uh, put us on a very compressed time schedule. Yeah, yeah. I um, Well, and, and <laughs> I guess I can be kind of a slave driver. Yeah, when kind of. Just, to, just a little bit. Yeah, so we... We had been working on it, um, I think when we when we met with you, um, at that point we were working on it once a week, two mm. hours a week by Skype, we'd like work in Google Docs together, and I did the math for how long it would take us to finish the book at that rate, and it was like five years, <laughs> yeah. so so um, I arranged a couple of retreats for us for the first and the second draft, and mm. we went away for six weeks and then three weeks. And, yeah, I um, remember you mentioned that you had a, a cabin somewhere or a yes. friend had a cabin or something. Yeah, um, if the parents of a friend of mine have a cabin uh, up in rural Washington and they leave for many months out of every year and need a ho- need house sitters and cat oh, sitters. And it's actually the same place where I wrote my master's thesis. So mm-hmm. I have this like ah, mental picture great. of that place as a place where I'm productive in terms of writing. So... Um, I hadn't been in touch with them in years, and I just randomly wrote to them and said, hey, any chance you need a house sitter this year? And they did. So, mm-hmm. Wow, that's yeah. great. You should yeah. buy that house from them. 
It's, you know, <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't seem very likely. I would so love they, to, but I don't think it's ever going to be for sale. They oh, built right. this house completely by hand. It's this enormous, sprawling, four-story log cabin, and they they wow. totally built it themselves. And not only did they build the cabin by hand, they built the mill with which they milled the logs that what? they cut down from yes. their property to build their cabin. Are they Amish? No, they're just really dedicated. <laughs> yeah. That's it cool. So you met like, them. They, did they come up to the cabin? Or something? Franklin hasn't met them. Yeah, I, I, I have uh, know them from the past. Right. So, but we actually have not been able to arrange a face-to-face meeting since the the book. Maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's really cool. I love when people do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. just out in the middle of nowhere and just do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They they poured their lives and hearts and souls into this place. That's amazing. Mm. And it's yeah. it's pretty remote, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, enough about the cabin. We're talking about the book. Right. So, you know, this, I have a special relationship with this book because um, when Sex at Dawn came out, the number one complaint people had was that there was no, like, now what do you do at the end, mm. right? Which our publisher wanted us to do, um, but we didn't feel qualified because... Uh, Intrinsically, it's difficult to give advice to people, especially on something complicated like relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, honestly, we're not polyamorous, right? Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like I wrote a book saying, hey, homosexuality is completely cool, makes perfect sense, and a lot of our ancestors were homosexuals, and people were like, oh, so tell us how to be a homosexual. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm not a homosexual, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just making an observation here, you know? So we, we weren't really... Um, comfortable or qualified to give people advice on how to handle this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Plus so, your book would have been 800 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we, I didn't have a cabin to retreat to. Uh, so it's great that you guys have come out with this because it really does fill a niche, right? I mean, there it's not, it's not like this is one of 10 books explaining how to pull off a successful polyamorous relationship. There. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got uh, Janet Hardy, I think, wrote one of the blurbs for this. The mm. the ethical slut is sort of the only other, well, that and opening up, I guess, Tristan Taramino. Those are, but they're not the same, right? Mm-hmm. They're, can yeah. you explain sort of how your book is different from theirs? <coughs> well, the ethical slut is really, um, actually, you want to you discuss that? Yeah, so when we set out to write this book, what we really wanted to do was we wanted to do something that was different from everything else out there on the market. And there are quite a few poly books out there, but they all tend to be like, you mentioned opening up. It's, you know, sort of this bird's eye overview of, of polyamory. It's not really a how to it's lots of different ways to have open relationships. You know, here's a bunch of people who are doing it. Here's how this person's doing it. Here's how that person's doing it. But it doesn't say, all right, well, how do you solve problems? How do you make it all work? Right. And the ethical slut really, um, I haven't, to be fair, I have not read the second edition. I've only read the first edition. The first edition wasn't really about how to make multiple romantic relationships work. It was about how to make multiple sexual relationships work, but it didn't get into the, you know, how do you do the laundry? How do you figure out, you know, how to how to keep multiple romances alive at the same time? So that's what we really wanted to do. And I actually, I wanted to do this book like years ago, right? So I started, I did what you're supposed to do when you want to write a book. I, I did a query letter and I shopped it around to publishers and everybody said, well, we're not interested in a how-to. But if you want to do a personal memoir, we would love to do that. And I'm like, well, actually the how-to is kind of what I think the world needs. And nobody wanted to touch it. So yeah. hmm. then I met Eve. <laughs> 
I think another thing that um, that's different about this book is there's um, uh, there are a number of social fallacies in the polyamorous community, which Franklin <laughs> has an essay about that on more than two.com. But uh, one of them is uh, this idea that um, you know we're we belong to a subculture. We are different from the mainstream culture. We're used to being judged. We're used to having people misunderstand us. And so we're very afraid of saying anything that might look like we're judging other people in our community. Mm. So if we say, well, you know, maybe that thing that is that people like to do isn't cool because it hurts a lot of people more often than it helps them, you get this, there's this backlash that's like, no, no, don't judge each other. It's all okay as long as it's working for, you know, they'll say, as long as it's working for the people involved or more commonly, as long as it's working for the couple. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the then, couple. And, and we really, we don't agree with that because we've seen a lot of devastation in, um, in polyamorous relationships. And a lot of that tends to stem from, uh, from people making the same kinds of, you know, we're willing to call them mistakes over and over and over again. And Can so you we give were, us a few examples? Um, wow. So the idea that um, if you just make enough rules and control your partner and their relationships enough, you can be safe. Uh, you can protect uh, yourself from change. You can protect yourself from jealousy. You right. can not have to deal with your insecurity. Right. That tends to blow up in people's faces because, one, it doesn't work. And, two, when it doesn't work, Rather than saying, oh, this isn't working, let's try a different approach, people often will double down and say, we just need to make more rules. That so. sounds like America to me. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. That's, that's, I think that's a fair point. <laughs> you know, rule-based society, mm-hmm. and the more frightened they get, the more rules they make, and mm-hmm. uh, without ever really noticing that the rules aren't going to solve the essential problem, mm-hmm. which is fear. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, you you can make all the damn anti-terrorist TSA rules you want, and if people want to blow your shit up, they're still going to blow it up. You yeah, know? it's been what ten years now, more than ten years, and we're still taking our shoes off at the airport. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's fucking silly. Uh, let me read a, a review. I, I looked at your Amazon page today, oh, and cool. I was very happy to see the book selling well. Congratulations, because mm-hmm. uh, it's tough. I mean, that's a it's a niche book. It's a niche market because you're not only I mean, I think this book is valuable for anyone, not only polyamorous people, just to get a sense of what that sort of lifestyle really means. Because people make all sorts of false assumptions. They think Mm -hmm. we're talking about swingers. Mm -hmm. They think we're talking about orgies. You know, they sort of project all their fantasies onto, you know, whatever it is. But um, I really enjoyed this this blurb, uh, or not a blurb, a review on Amazon. It says, by far the best book on relationships out there. That's... Great. Well, must have been wonderful to read that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Notice I didn't say poly relationships, although it is that. I said relationships. This book is the only book I've ever read to address relationships from an ethical perspective and to get it right. Before we start talking about structures and finding new partners and managing conflict, we have to start with the foundation, which is ethical treatment of other human beings. Everything else springs from that foundation. If you don't have good ethics at the basis of your relationship, then the structure doesn't matter. How many people are in the relationship doesn't matter. How or where you find new partners doesn't matter. And conflict resolution strategies don't matter. All that can be used to create abusive, coercive, harmful, or just plain old unsuccessful relationships. That's a great review. And it really gets to the point of what's different about polyamory versus other relationships. Right? Wow, I haven't read that review. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. 
You wrote it. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> under a false name. Right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, sure. Because that's, that's what I do. I go onto Amazon and create fake user accounts. Man, I can't remember my one password on Amazon. I can only imagine trying to. We've actually had a hell of a time trying to manage just the different uh, Amazon channels we have oh, to God, manage. Yeah, there's the, yeah, there's a lot of rigmarole in yeah. there, isn't there? When when Sex of Dawn came out, it got a bunch. You know, the first. 30 reviews or something were positive and people mm-hmm. started saying, oh, see, this is very suspicious. Look mm-hmm. at this. They're all positive reviews. Oh, Dr. Ryan's up there. Hey, uh, doctor. And they would actually like respond to the reviewer and say, yeah, yeah, Chris Ryan, we know this is you. Why wow. Don't you, like, wow. Seriously? Oh, yeah. All sorts of nasty weirdness. We got a one-star review a couple we of did. months ago and we were like, woohoo, we're real authors now. We have a one-star <laughs> review. But it was only up for a couple of months and then it, it disappeared and I don't know if oh. the, the user took it down or it got downvoted too many times or what uh, oh, happened with it. But it was so funny because the person who read it was like, yeah... Or who wrote the review said, "Yeah, I read the first couple of chapters, and then I realized that polyamory is a terrible idea." And yeah. So, <laughs> so one star to the book. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Alrighty then. I'm not polyamorous. I'm not a Buddhist, and yeah. I read this book about the history of you know <laughs> Buddhist monasteries, and and I realized that that's just not for me. Yeah. One star. Yeah. <laughs> or you get the people who leave one star because the they don't like the font, mm-hmm. or or the book arrived. Two days later, then, you know, it's wow. like, what's that have to do with me? Give right. me a break. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's get back to the ethical thing. You're talking about um, mistakes people make, common right. mistakes people make. Right. Um, and over-reliance on rules was one of them. Yeah, you know? and I think one of the ways that ties in with ethics is that often um, uh, one of the things that, that we talk about is that Another way that people try to manage risk is by shifting risk onto one person Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. a group. Um, So, you know, if you have, so for example, we talk about the hierarchical primary secondary model where um, there's a core couple and then there are secondary partners, but they're sort of expendable. So anytime there's trouble in the core relationship, they have to go away. And it's just sort of expected that that they will accept that. And um, that actually, um, even when it's something, you know, it's pre-negotiated, you know going in that that's what you're signing up for, the reality of that um, in that relationship, particularly when you fall in love and your partner is actually extending real intimacy to you and asking you to open your heart to them but saying, oh, but, you know, you need but to... But not too far. Not too far. You can get too close. Yeah. You can get We're close, not really... but not too close, and you can never be sure that I will be here for you. That's yeah. really not an okay thing to do to a human being. Yeah. Mm. But that is sort of, uh, that's one of the standard configurations of a polyamorous relationship, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's starting to change. Um, definitely when I first became aware of polyamory as a thing and the poly community, that was sort of the default model and that was the expectation. And they would all, polyamory back then was very much something that couples would do. Right. And you would have, you know, a core couple, they were often married, and then you would have a whole set of lifestyle accessories. Yeah. And fortunately, that's really starting to change. Um, in, what, 2003, 2004, I put up a, a page on my website that was the Secondary's Bill of Rights, and oh boy, did people not like that. Um, you know, the idea that a quote-unquote secondary partner would have any rights at all in a relationship that really that blew some people's minds and i got hate mail i got people telling me things like 
well, if secondaries want to have a say in their relationship, um, they should have a primary of their own. I had a few people email me and say, if you're a secondary in a relationship, you should be grateful for whatever you get. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and that, it, Franklin has written about this on the blog recently, that seems to stem from this deeply ingrained idea that we're somehow getting away with something by being polyamorous, that right. we don't really have a right to be polyamorous. And so a lot uh, of people accept stuff that they wouldn't accept in other situations because there's still this sort of shame about right. this idea, I'm dating a married man, that's wrong, you know, I'm getting away with something, so if they treat me in a way that I would not normally accept in a relationship, I just have to swallow that and deal with it because I'm, mm -hmm. I, I can't, because there's this idea that I'm still hurting the other partner and, right, just by being there. The other partner and the other partner's relationship, yeah. the sacred yeah. marriage mm -hmm. and all. But it also explains that sense that getting away with something also explains that anger that mm -hmm. you point to in some of the comments that that mm -hmm. post generated, right? Mm -hmm. You should just be happy with what you've got. Yeah. You're getting away. Like, you know, you're like the guy who robbed the bank and only got $10,000 and you're bitching about it. <laughs> right. Well, fuck you. Yeah. you it's know? like, what? You're not happy that you're having sex with my wife? You need to be treated like a human being, too? <laughs> yeah, really. How unreasonable. <laughs> um, but, but isn't there, you know, play the devil's advocate for a second. Isn't there something at the, you know, something we could even reduce just to pure mathematics, right? You're, you know, uh, a binary relationship is so much simpler than a triangular relationship because the triangular relationship holds out all that possibility of two against one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do you, especially if, as is generally the case, right, three people very rarely meet one night in a bar and say, let's form a three-way relationship. It's normally a pre-existing relationship and another person comes into the orbit, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you avoid the sort of essential reality that there are these different um, different depths and different intensities. Because I'm imagining the sort of classic situation. Let's just pretend heterosexual, male-female couple, married a long time. So there's a lot of depth there. There's shared property. There might be kids. There's mm -hmm. family mm -hmm. intertwining and all that. Then you have the third person comes in. Another guy comes into the picture and he's uh, with the woman, there's intensity there mm -hmm. that she doesn't have with her husband. So there's this imbalance of all sorts of, you know, now do those imbalances It's funny, we have compensate? pictures of this. Oh, there's, really? there's illustrations of this um, on, uh, in the chapter on hierarchical and, and uh, primary secondary poly. And um, what you're talking about, I think... Um, so we have little arrows here that describe the, the formation of the relationships, and um, we talk about uh, three, three different essential uh, sort of things that dynamics that develop between people. There's the, the connection, which is that thing that you're talking about. You meet, and there's this, like, wow, I need to, to get to know this person and be connected to them. Then there's commitment, which is both relationship commitments. I will be there for you. I will support mm -hmm. you and listen to you and hear you, and there's logistical commitments. We have kids, a house, a right. car, whatever. Um, and then there's power, which is sort of dependent on those other, other things. And so we try to tease apart, and this is why we actually spend so much time on uh, hierarchy and then the idea of empowerment. Um, we try to tease apart the differences between, um, like there are relationships where you have different levels of commitment and connection. 
And those are always going to be different in different relationships. Often they're going to be different even within a relationship. I may be more committed to to you than you are to me, for example. Right. Um, and... Um, and that's okay. You can't force those to, to be different, and, and you shouldn't. And in fact, I think one of the things that um, that people sometimes try to do is say, well, mm-hmm. you can't ever make a, you know these commitments or this connection. It can't ever be b- bigger than ours, for example. Right. Um, but <clears throat> what, bigger, as, what if, as defines, if you knew how to right, yeah. measure, to, it, to measure right. that. Well, yeah. I, that was the relationship I was in, too, with my ex-wife. She said... <clears throat> Uh-oh, there's a lot of noise going on. <laughs> it's just a, a, an envelope being stuffed right. through the door, the oh. slot in the door. Yeah, yeah so my, my no. ex-wife was like, well, you can't love somebody more than you love me. I'm like, all right, well, how do you measure that? Right, yeah. and I presume you didn't have children. No, we did not have children, fortunately, that- um, because I, I don't know that I would make a good daddy somehow. I just, yeah, so- never wanted kids. I wonder so, if not wanting kids is related to being polyamorous on some level. It really isn't. Most of the poly people I know do have kids. Um, I know a lot of poly people with kids. Yeah. Do, we talk about that. Were they poly before they had kids? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, sometimes there are people who had kids and then discovered polyamory. Um, I know people who um, are became polyamorous first or discovered they were polyamorous first, had kids, and in some cases even had kids like with more than one parent. And that was a conversation in one of the poly groups that I went to several years ago. Um, the group actually brought in a lawyer because uh, somebody had this question, you know, my husband and I have been together for 10 years. We have a six-year-old kid, and now um, I want to have a kid with my boyfriend, and my boyfriend and I have been together for five years. What can I do legally to protect my boyfriend's parental rights? And, you know, it gets complicated. Was the lawyer Diane Adams by any chance? No. Do you know her? Uh, I've, I have met Diane Adams. Yes, I have talked to her um, Quite a number of years ago. Yeah, she's, for those who don't know, she's a lawyer specializing in these sort of alternative Mm -hmm. uh, relationship configurations. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Sheff uh, is the author of the book, The Polyamorous Next Door, and she did a multi-year longitudinal study of poly families with children. Mm. And that's what her, that's what The Polyamorous Next Door is about, actually. Uh, That was like a 15-year study, I think. Yeah. And what did she find? Um, well, it's it's in her book, which I unfortunately have not had time to actually read oh. yet. But um, you know, she she talks. Do you want to talk about that? Generally speaking, the um, the takeaway is that poly families are perfectly healthy for kids. That uh, you know, everybody is always worried about. Well, what do I tell my kids? And you know, it, this is actually not that complicated a question. You talk to your kids in age appropriate ways. You answer questions honestly, and you don't make a big deal out of it. And um, that you know. Polyamorous families are perfectly stable, and um, do, there are no. You do not see worse outcomes for children in poly households than you do for children in any other households. Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, I, I don't know. Perfectly stable. You, you're pushing a little there, but as, well, stable, as stable as any as, other. Okay, perfectly stable when compared to yeah. you know the normalized relationships right. as a whole. I and mean, that brings me yeah. to a point that I was gonna I was gonna raise with you, which is it must drive you guys crazy. I imagine you get this all the time because I get it all the time. People saying, "I know I know someone who was polyamorous and it didn't work." Right? I know people, and it's like compared to what? Mm-hmm. Compared I know to monogamous an ideal? people, and, yeah, yeah no and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. of the things that Dr. Chef uh, does say is that polyamorous families resemble um, 
uh, monogamous divorced families or blended families. Right. It's really the same kinds of dynamics. You still have, you know, there are breakups, there are shifts, there right. are kids, you know, form attachments to, um, not to parental figures who aren't biological parents, and mm -hmm. it's the same. Right. Yeah, there was a case in uh, Florida many, many years ago. There was a family that I knew um, who had a, a kid who was in elementary school, so somewhere around eight years old. And um, somehow one of his teachers found out that they were a polyamorous family. They were a live-in triad or a live-in quad. I don't remember which. Um, and confronted the kid about it, which is kind of a messed up thing to do, you know, go and confront right. an eight-year-old about what his parents are doing. What? But uh, she was like, well... Doesn't it feel strange to have two daddies? And the kid is like, well, all of my friends have two mommies or two daddies. What's so unusual about that? What? Smart kid. Yeah. Well, wait, who are his friends? Yeah. Oh, because, I see. You know, divorce and remarriage okay. gotcha. is so right. common. So right. common. Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, I think I had one friend with an intact family, right. an intact biological family, and everyone else had parents who were separated. Uh, and or remarried. And one of the things, you know, you're talking about the similarities, right, between mm -hmm. the polyamorous grouping and people divorced, you know, all these mm -hmm. fractured relationships. They're similar, as you say, in the in the sense that adults might come and go. There are uh, attachments formed with people mm -hmm. who aren't biologically uh, related, etc. But one of the big differences is, I I would imagine, a lot less acrimony. In yes. the polyamorous unions, right? Because the adults are dealing with this stuff. They, it's out in the open. It's not 20 years of accumulated hatred and bitterness. You know, <laughs> your father's a fucking... You know, you're not getting that stuff. Because whatever needs to be discussed is discussed among the adults. And hopefully they're not using the kids against each other. Yeah, that's, Usually. You know, that's... It, it does happen. But um, certainly... I mean, I've even seen examples of uh, poly parents who are separated... Um, but continue to have a live-in co-parenting relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I've seen in monogamous relationships. I always scratch my head because, you know, you see, uh, like you go online, for example, and people are always like, oh, yeah, you know, I hate my ex. Or um, my ex said we should be friends after we break up. What do you think? And everybody's all like, oh, you can't do that. You should never talk to an ex <laughs> again. You know, cut them out of your life. There's a reason you broke up. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, but there's a reason you liked each other in the first place, too. Right. Why throw that away? I mean, seriously. It's like you got to burn down every fucking apartment you've ever rented. <laughs> yes. <laughs> where, where, where's the sense in this approach yeah. to life? You end up, no wonder you end up lonely and, you know, mm -hmm. isolated because it's so weird. I mean, we, we don't apply this thinking to any other aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when a relationship ends, mm -hmm. yeah, I've seen this advice too. You know, you got to cut them out of your life, you know? Or, or even if it, I was watching something the other day, some uh, documentary about monogamy, questioning monogamy and all that, and they interviewed people, I think it was in, in L.A. on the beach, you know, just in Venice, you know, skateboarding by. What would you do if your girlfriend and or boyfriend or husband wife cheated on you and you found out, you know, oh, that would be it. He's out. They're out. It's over. Mm -hmm. It's done. Mm -hmm. Really? The, you, you, like, break up your family, get rid of your house, like, you know, all, yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, there's no negotiating that. Yeah. I think part of the, the, I've been thinking about this lately, actually, and I think part of the issue is that we aren't used to having 
uh, emotional intimacy in our friendships. Like there's mm. there's sort of a, there's a greater emotional distance between us and our friends than there is between us and our romantic partners. And so when you end a romantic relationship, you've got that emotional intimacy there. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe that's why you broke up is because you grew apart. But if you do have that that like you know you're leaning on each other you are used to being really exposed and really vulnerable with this person and then suddenly you don't have the reliability of that you know we're in a relationship anymore i think a lot of people have a hard time navigating that um sort of it, it's sort of a jarring distinction between here's this new distance that we're supposed to have between us but here but i still feel very vulner vulnerable and exposed with you yeah. mm, um and and people's response to that is often well i just need to not have that person in my life and yeah. um i think for a lot of people a break of you know even a year or two while you just sort of get over them and you know move on with your life and then sort of reestablish a connection at that new level can be beneficial. Oh yeah. I, I had a really painful breakup with an ex-girlfriend. Um, and it was painful because we weren't angry, mm. you know? And at that time I remember thinking how much easier this would be if yeah. I could just convince myself that she was a fucking bitch and then it's all her fault or, mm. or vice versa. If there were, because the anger deadens the pain in a way, or at mm -hmm. least at least obscures it somehow. Yeah. And it was just really painful to see her because I loved her, mm -hmm. you know, and I saw her drifting away and she saw me drifting away and it was like surgery without anesthesia. But, you know, here I am, what is it now, 18 years later and she's one of my best friends, mm -hmm. you know, and... I feel more of a paternal connection to her kids than probably any kids in the world. Because, th I mean, I think this is what polyamory maybe acknowledges in a way that other approaches to relationships can't, is that relationships don't really begin in, I mean, they do begin, but they don't end. Mm. Mm. They change. Sometimes they end. Sometimes they end. But, it, but do they end? I mean, even if someone dies... Your relationship with that person isn't over. Well, you, yeah, you they still leave a mark on your life. Yeah. Well, and well, your and your sense of them changes as you age. You know, mm -hmm. like oh, if if your father died when he was forty, and now you're forty, you understand him in a way you didn't when you were twenty. Mm -hmm. You That's know, a, yeah, good point. I good mean, point. these mm -hmm. things are so organic and go on, and and so if you've spent ten years of your life with someone, and the relation, the the marriage or whatever you want to call it, is over. That person's impact and presence in your life will never be over. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's very true, yeah. So you can only choose whether you're going to make it bullshit and ugly mm -hmm. or, you know, man or woman up, if that's a phrase, woman up, and, <laughs> and you know, and like acknowledge its beauty and try to hold on to it in a way. Mm. So, know, yeah, I That's actually, my rant. Sorry. A couple of years ago, I guess now, um, I broke up, well, actually she broke up with me. I had a, a partner here in Portland and, you know, she decided that we were not compatible as romantic partners and so she broke up with me. And we are still very, very much in love with each other. And we are still very, very close friends. And for me, I think one of the, the turning points in my own life with being able to sort of accept that that can happen and not be angry and bitter and resentful about it was this idea that people have the right to break up with me. Right. I don't have the right to expect them 
to be something to me simply because I like them. Like, and a feeling on my part is not an obligation on somebody else's part. Yeah, that's such an essential lesson in in maturation that a lot of people never get to. It's a hard one. It is a hard one, but it's but it's so basic, right? Because what you're saying is this person's um, rejection or just non-acceptance, which isn't even the same as rejection, right? Or Mm -hmm. non-wanting to be what I want is not necessarily even about me, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, hey, you know, at this point in my life, what I'm looking for is not you. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Uh-huh. It's just not what I need right now, according to me. And, you know, hey, who doesn't have a right to make that decision? Yeah, and other people are real. You know, her, her needs, her motivations are just as valid as mine are. Yeah, 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 interesting. Uh, you were... Eve, were you about to say something? I feel like we cut, the, the men cut you off here while we were mansplaining. Uh, there, well, I, I feel like the conversation has moved way, way on from the thing I was going to say. Oh, before, we're, we're into the so. deeper yeah, yeah, we, we did yeah. sort of take so that I was, right I was going to talk, well, I, the, the podcast is tangentially speaking, it is. right? There so is I think there have been like no five obligation tangents. to be focused <laughs> so, whatsoever. Yeah. Um, do you feel well? Tell me something about the the reception of the book. You said mentioned before you were on a book tour. Where did that take you? Other than the sex toy we shop in Denver, went to yeah, factory. That was fun. Factory, that was fun. Factory. Yeah, we did thirty three events in twenty Ooh. states. Uh, we traveled almost four thousand miles. Uh, spoke to close to seven hundred people on horseback. Um, in in Franklin's van, <laughs> in, in the back of a twenty two year old camper van. Oh right, yeah. 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 It was quite an adventure. We were gone for seven weeks, and by the end of it, it was like, wow, this is just our life now. Uh-huh. You know, I can't imagine. So, so do you feel? And, and don't answer this if you don't want to. Uh, in, in fact, we can edit out the question <laughs> if, you, if you're that strongly about. Um, do you ever like go to do an event and, and you're in the middle of having like a relationship fight? And you're like, oh, now we have to go be on stage and act like (laughs) everything's great because we're the model of how to work all this shit out. We found that actually living together for seven weeks in the back of a camper van was surprisingly smooth. Oh, wow. The first two weeks were a little rocky, I think. It it took a while. And um, I don't think we had any events where we had to like go straight from fighting into an event. Oh. Um, But we certainly had fights. But then uh, I would say like about... Three weeks in, we kind of hit our stride, and it got pretty smooth nice. after that. Because that kind of travel can be really uh, mm-hmm. trying on a relationship. Yeah, I was a little worried about that, you know, because you're living in close quarters with somebody in a sort of high-stress environment in a way that you can't get away from. But I would say I think everything went surprisingly smoothly. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think we fought more in the cabin than we did in the van, actually. Well, we were trying to write the book in the cabin, and that was That might have been more stressful hard. than the book tour, actually. Yeah. Getting, but, getting this thing out in the timetable that we yeah. had was really tough. Yeah. Is it self-published? We, uh, we actually founded a publishing company uh, to publish it. Um, so it, it is not self-published in the sense that it has been through a complete editing and design and proofreading and indexing process, all right. with professionals. Um, but I, I, my, in my other life, I run a publication support company in Vancouver. Right, so, right. Um, it's a so beautiful book, people. by the way. Really yeah. nice cover, and, and I like the, you know, the way it's put together. It's so, um, but, but it is self-published in the sense that we own the publishing company, and I was the managing editor on it. Um, but That's we're publishing great. three new books next year. 
mm-hmm. uh, under the foreign to repress him, right, in, including yeah, Franklin's s- memoir, yes. the book that the publishers wanted him to write. Uh, and now I'm when. saying to, I'm going to all the publishers mentally and saying, <laughs> you know, you didn't want to take a chance on this book, which is actually, you know, selling amazingly well. Sorry, you don't get to have the memoir. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the self the self publishing route is is interesting, or, mm-hmm. you know, or owning. That's uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Tucker Max. Do you know who he is? The name rings a bell. He's uh, he's sort of as far from you guys as you can get. He's uh, famous for developing uh, fratire, the sort of drunk, drunk, obnoxious okay. dude picking up chicks and puking. Oh God! You know that might have been where I heard of him. I think he wrote a book called "In I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell." Okay. He's had like five New York Times bestsellers. Wow. wow. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I had him on the podcast, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the dude's brilliant. He's super smart. And uh, if you hear his actual story, it's it's mm-hmm. amazing. But anyway, the the connection is that he realized, like, why am I why am I given eighty five percent of the money to publishers? What are they essentially doing? Mm-hmm. They're proofreading. They're doing cover design. I'd rather have control of that myself. I'm happy to hire people to do that because then I can give them feedback and they'll actually listen to me, Mm -hmm. unlike publishers. And um, so what am I paying them for? Distribution. They're subcontracting that. Yep. So why don't I just form a publishing company and subcontract the distribution myself? Although I have to say, you know, speaking... We're interested. It's interesting for us because we're sitting on the author and publisher side of it here, right. and now we're publishing other people's books. And the economics of the publishing industry are brutal. Um, we are not, ex- you know, we're expecting, hoping to make enough money to keep the company running, but I don't know that we're going to make any money from the publishing side of it. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of publishers stay afloat just through through grants. There's always a shortfall every year, and. Mm-hmm. You apply for a grant, and that keeps you going. Really? The publishing model is broken. Yeah. It really it feels like so. I didn't know anything about publishing, and we decided to launch a publishing company because that's what Eve does, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, she's like, oh yeah, let's let's just you know create a new business. Hey, and great blog post, Franklin. You should start a company for that. I, yeah, yeah. That's that's what Eve and I do. We start businesses. <laughs> um, but in fact, last time I was up in. Uh, Canada, which was last week, we were starting another business. Really? Yeah. Yes. Jeez, you guys. Just... I was. I was telling before you got here. I was telling Chris that I'm a serial entrepreneur, and he said you guys are the the border collies of humans. <laughs> right. Awesome. Can't can't stop working. Always so, working. Yeah. There's always hurting something. Yes. Yeah. But we launched this publishing company, and I had to get a crash course in how the publishing industry works, and it's sort of appalling. Yeah. It's like if you took this, you know. 16th century guild system and you gave everybody computers that's how the industry works yeah yeah it's funny when i turned in the manuscript for sex at dawn i was in spain right and Mm -hmm. i i so i emailed the word document and i was sort of waiting you know as you do like oh boy is this Mm going to be this is amazing or sorry we're not going to pay you any more of your advance Mm -hmm. you know or whatever it was and like two weeks later i got this big package in the mail Mm -hmm. and it was my editor, who I love, he's a wonderful guy, um, but just a sense of what publishing is like, he had printed it out, mm-hmm. one side of each sheet of paper, yep. and gone through it with a pencil, mm-hmm. <laughs> and made his edits with a pencil. Really? And that's As what an I editor, got back. that's actually the easiest way to, to work, I, I can 
in in many cases. Really? Yeah, you because can, you, you can't particularly just do when it on the word document and email it back to me, and we save paper and postage and time. If you're doing a substantive edit for me, um, I I don't send the author my manuscript that I work on, but I do print it all out. And yeah, I print it one sided, single sided, because I need to make notes on it. And um, and to because you're looking at the whole document structurally and you're looking for flow and duplicated content it's for me that ability to to physically move through the content and move things mm. around and look back and say okay you know I marked this here and it's a very it's it's a sort of tactile thing right. and make notes for myself now I I then take that and I transcribe it all into a word document and oh, really? send that to the author with comments and which ends up taking you twice as much time um, I would say it adds about 20% to really? the time to, to move all that content in. But but I do know that um, a lot of editors will just send that. Um, you know, I don't like to try to make my notes neat and try to, but a lot of editors will do that and will do the whole thing for the author and then send that in. And it's just because... Now I feel terrible. <laughs> I'm making well, fun of this guy. <laughs> and as I said, I like him. He's a great editor. <laughs> It, it is how some people work, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, when we were doing the, the second draft of this thing, we were in Florida. Um, we went to this gay bar that was really close to one of my partner's apartment because that's where we were, we were staying when, in her apartment while we were doing this. You don't have to make and, excuses for going to a gay bar. Yeah, well, we went to a gay bar <laughs> so that we could work, right? Because we're uh, always working. So this is what mm -hmm. we do. And uh, Eve had printed out the whole manuscript, and we're sitting at the table in this bar, and she's got all of these papers spread out across the table, and she's scribbling notes on them, and she's rearranging pages. And, yeah, that's what we do at gay bars, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone come over and say hi? Uh, so, as a matter of fact, it's interesting, the conversation, the, the things that will drift out of conversation. So, there was a bartender there, and she was um, talking to some people that she apparently knew in some context, who knows what. And, yeah, they suddenly just started talking out of nowhere about polyamory. And she's like, oh, you know, yeah, I've heard of this thing, and it's called polyamory, and there are these people who, are, who do it. And, you know, I met some people who are these polyamorists. And, you know, we're sitting there with, like, you know, knee-deep in these, this yeah. first draft of this book that we're writing about poly. So that was a little, a little surreal. It's like there's a field consciousness <laughs> sort of effect happening. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how that happens. By the way, I don't think we've actually defined polyamory. We're assuming everybody listening to this knows what it is. I assume they do. If they're listening to my podcast, they probably do. But how do you guys define it? It's the practice of having more than one um, romantic relationship at the same time. Um, so it's different from something like swinging or open relationships in that it's generally not, uh, there's more to those relationships than sex. In fact, there's sometimes less to those relationships than sex because uh, a lot of people who are asexual practice polyamory as well. Um, oh, interesting. Um, it can also be people who are polyamorous can be actively engaging in multiple relationships or they can just have the inclination and relationship philosophy of doing that. So you can be single and polyamorous if you consider yourself someone who is open to having multiple uh, so relationships. It, so you consider it sort of an orientation, not just a behavior. It's both. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, when you talk about orientation, there's more and more evidence now that orientation is something that's genetic or biological, or at least there's some sort of biological predisposition. Is there a predisposition to non-monogamy? 
Maybe there's no probably. Yeah, there's no evidence to support that, but it seems reasonable. Is there a predisposition to polyamory? Well, polyamory is one way to express non-monogamy, but it's not the only way. So polyamory is kind of like this social consensus or, or social identity built around ethical non-monogamy, but it is not the same thing as non-monogamy. There are many ways to practice non-monogamy. So it's, gonna, it's complicated. I'm going to disagree with you on one thing you just said. What's that? I actually think that there is pretty good evidence that, that non-monogamy is, or a tendency to be non-monogamous is is innate and that humans have it. And also that there's a pretty wide range uh, in human beings of, you know, from people mm. who are, are more oriented towards being monogamous and people who are more oriented towards yeah. having multiple sexual or romantic partners. Well, we're not at the point yet where we can point to a gene or a set of genes and say, you know, these genes code for proteins that result in expressing... Well, sure, but that doesn't right. mean that there's not evidence that okay, we yeah. are non-monogamous granted, innately. Granted, yes. Yeah, the whole genetic thing is pretty pretty um, intense. I was watching, uh, what's his name? Um, it's a BBC documentary. Last night it was called The Monkey in the Machine. Have you heard of it? The, uh, Adam Curtis. Huh. Oh, it's amazing. It was, uh, it was part three that we watched last night. It was about um, uh, William, oh, gee, now I can't remember the names of all these guys. Um, <clears throat> The, the two guys who basically um, we were talking about William Hamilton and George Price were featured in this movie last night. And uh, William Hamilton was this guy who was hanging out in London. He's an American guy, I think, but he was hanging out in London. And he was the first person to really get into the idea that the genes could encode for behavior. And, of course, the first thing you want to look at or that they looked at was altruism. How does that make sense? So he developed all these math complex mathematical formula for explaining how sacrificing your life could make genetic sense if it had given effects on different uh, levels of relatedness of people around you, right? So if mm -hmm. you sacrifice your life and you save eight of your cousins, well, that's a net gain for your DNA. Yep. So anyway, he very interesting guy. And then George Price was this other guy who uh, became friends with him. And the two of them, these mathematicians, I mean, William Hamilton won. I don't know if he won a Nobel Prize, but he won like the highest uh, prizes in his field. And, um, and then he interestingly became uh, radical, radically unselfish and started giving away everything he had and inviting homeless people into his apartment and um or no this was george price sorry george price just became like jesus but like to an insane extent mm -hmm. um and he died basically homeless in london meanwhile william hamilton had the idea early in the aids days that aids had been created by american scientists who were working on a vaccine uh, using chimps in the Congo. So he mm -hmm. flew to the Congo to investigate this and to break the story. And he's in Congo, like in the middle of this horrible civil war, mm -hmm. raging craziness. He gets malaria, refuses to take anti-malarial drugs, instead takes an aspirin. The aspirin lodges in his stomach, causes a hemorrhage, and he dies from internal wow. bleeding. Wow. 
You know, of all of the conspiracy theories out there, the idea that we created AIDS doesn't make a lot of sense because if we were going to do that, I mean, back then we knew fuck all about how retroviruses work. If you're going to engineer some sort of, you know, killer virus or something, that is not the way you'd go about it. You wouldn't start with a retrovirus. Well, but he wasn't saying that it was intentional. That's the thing. What, what the theory was, or the hypothesis was that they had been working on a vaccine for something else. I don't know if it was malaria or whatever, using chimps from the Congo. And the chimps, the blood in the chimps already contained the AIDS virus. And so mm. somehow it like got over into the human blood pool by being pulled in through this, you know, turns out there was no evidence for it. Anyway. Yeah, that, that sounds very, um, it sounds very, we faked the moon landing kind of territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you believe in any conspiracies? There are conspiracies, certainly. They generally are not, you know, huge, sprawling conspiracies of 10,000 people and, like, the entire scientific establishment. But, yeah, I mean, you can get two or three people in a back room conspiring to, you know, I don't know, subvert a, an election in a key swing state with, um, Ohio. with voting, yeah, Ohio. voting machines. Or, Ohio. <laughs> or conspiring to make it harder for people who are in certain demographics not to to, to vote, so that's well, that's because of voter that fraud. That that has nothing to do. <laughs> Those black people are just they're just lining up to vote, even though they don't live there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certainly, but, organized you know, crime exists, and that's, yeah, those yeah. Are conspiracies. But yeah, the idea of a of a globe spanning conspiracy of of scientists of all people, yeah. um, is pretty difficult to. Swallow. Although I mean, it, I I'm much more sympathetic to sort of I don't know if this phrase exists, but structural conspiracy. You know what I mean? So, for example, uh, in medical research, I wouldn't say any particular scientists are getting together and deciding to skew the research mm -hmm. in a certain way. But it's certainly true that, you know, if you're researching a drug, the drug company's paying you to research it and your results are non inconclusive or negative, it's mm -hmm. very likely that research will never be published. Yeah. Whereas if your results are positive, it will be. Mm -hmm. So it's not that anyone is saying, don't do this, mm -hmm. but you sort of want to have your relationship with the drug company continue, and therefore you don't want to offend anyone, and if you're not so sure and it doesn't look so good, I mean, that's demonstrated. So yeah. I don't know if we could call I, I that a conspiracy. That structural but, bias more yeah. than... Yeah. yeah, it's not really a conspiracy, but definitely it is a... It's not a perfect system. Yeah. And that certainly plays out in a lot of different ways in a lot of different like, <laughs> fields. Drugs are always tested on, you know, uh, middle-class white college undergrads because that's who the, the population is that they can get easily is, you know, all of these college undergrads who want to make pizza money. Which brings us back to sex. Mm. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Sexual research mm -hmm. is done on these white middle-class, you know, kids. Even when they do multicultural stuff, it's still people going to college, which yep. is by definition upper class, especially if you're in Ethiopia or someplace. Yep, because yeah. that's where you can get a whole bunch of people all together in one place who are, you know, easy to, to experiment on. Right. I love how they, they come up with this stuff. You know, 40% of women, you know, rarely or never have orgasm. And then you, like, drill down into it, and, and they're talking to 22-year-old girls at yes. the oldest, right. you know? Yep, yep. Like, come on now. Let's talk to some 40-year-olds and get back to me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, when I was 22, I knew fuck all about sex. <laughs> <laughs> So getting back to this orientation versus behavioral mm -hmm. thing, I, I read in your bio that you, what, how did you say it, that you were 
like uh, philosophically polyamorous since 1984 and behaviorally since 1998 or something like that? I think that, that was yeah. me, actually. Because Franklin has been practically and philosophically polyamorous his entire sexual, sexual life. Oh, yeah. really? I have yeah. never I been in a monogamous relationship. Oh, here it is. Franklin has been ideologically polyamorous his entire uh, life, uh-huh. functionally polyamorous since 1984. Yep. That that was I like that ideologically versus functionally. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. monogamy just doesn't make sense to me. It never has. Like you know, I'm a kid and I'm hearing these stories about the princess who has to choose one of the handsome princesses, and I'm like, well, why? Yeah. Why can't she have them both? Yeah, it's the the underlying premise that's accepted is ridiculous. Yes, ridiculous is a word. Um, I might use some even stronger words than that, but yes. Well, there are stronger words that are warranted because it causes so much unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. I was just watching a movie the other night with Casilda, a very interesting Canadian film called The Stories We Tell or The Tales We Tell. Have you heard about this? Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting film. This woman essentially finds out that the guy she thinks is her father is not biologically her father, probably. And she decides to make a movie about her investigation of figuring out who her father biologically is. And she interviews her siblings and the father, the mother's died. And so this stuff all came out after the mother died. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a real time recreation of this very dramatic moment in her life. And there's a moment where she's talking to her cultural father the man who raised her, and he says something about um, how badly he feels for this other man who'd had an affair with his wife before she died and, got, and she got pregnant with him. And that the news makes him feel bad for the other guy because he didn't have a chance to be in your life when you were growing up. Uh, and I don't feel bad for myself. Of course not. I'm, and I don't. I'm not angry that their moment of love resulted in you. How could mm-hmm. I be angry about that? He's such a cool guy. Yeah, right? that's awesome. He's so integrated and so like looking at the big picture, right? And you look at that and, and you see all the suffering that the mother who subsequently died from cancer, which we could talk about whether there's a psychological component to that or not. But I mean, she was tormented by this huge lie at the center of her life and it's completely unnecessary Mm -hmm. she could have told him he would have been hurt Mm -hmm. but it certainly seems looking at the personalities of these people now that the lover would have been welcome in their home at least on weekends to hang out with the the little girl and there was no sort of uh, you know either or. I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying, and we assume that there is in our romantic relationship. My lo- my lover's other lover does not have to be my enemy, and there's no reason to start from the assumption that he must be, and therefore we have to have this this conflict. The zero sum yeah. assumption about love, yeah, yeah, so, or that if you have feelings for someone else, I mean, you you wrote about this, I think, in Sex at Dawn, like the, this assumption that if if I have feelings for somebody else, it means that there's something wrong with. <sighs> God. With my right. relationship with the, the person I'm with. Yeah, so. whereas what it really means is that you have a, your libido isn't completely dead. Mm-hmm. So, which, or you're which, human and you're wired to connect. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah. There's this meme that keeps going around the internet of Johnny Depp, and he's like, 
you know, if you fall in love with two people, you should go with the second one because if you truly loved the first one, you would never have fallen in love that. with the second yeah. one. And I'm like, okay, this guy has been engaged like six times and he's on, I think, wife number three or something right now. Why on earth would anybody take his advice about relationships and love? I mean, seriously? Our copy yeah. editor actually, uh, I think on our third mention of Johnny Depp in this book, she she commented, why are you being so hard on Johnny Depp? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, and this idea has so much currency. And there's this weird sort of proprietary like ownership thing attached to it. There's this conversation that I saw online recently, and somebody was like, well, what's wrong with having two girlfriends? And, you know, all of the replies are like, you know, oh, well, that's an, an, this evil, immoral thing to do. And this guy was like, well, if you have two girlfriends, that's like parking diagonally across two parking spots in a parking lot that's almost full. Ooh. And I'm like, yeah, number one, you. Number two, women are not property. Number three, you're not entitled to them. Number four, you. <laughs> And number five, why do we assume that if I have two girlfriends, it means that, that mean, there's a guy out there who doesn't get to have one because maybe my girlfriends have other boyfriends? Yeah, well, he probably got that idea from evolutionary psychology because that's one of the sort of mainstream explanations for the advent of monogamy, right? That it was an economic... I love this one, by the way, because they're saying, you know, in order to keep uh, settlements, you know, people from uprising against the, the rulers... They, the rulers couldn't take all the women. So you couldn't have these, you know, like Ishmael the bloodthirsty with his 866 wives because there would be too many single men then because there aren't enough wives to go around and they'd, you know, rise up and, and kill them. So monogamy uh, as a cultural institution arose in order to make sure that most men would get a wife, right? So it's, and what kills me about that is. Like, where is this socialist impulse expressed in any other way? Like, you, your wife, and your kids will all be starving in the street because I've got a huge fucking castle and I'm keeping it all for myself. But at least you've got a wife to starve with, right? Like, what is that? (laughs) That's such bullshit. But it's this mainstream you know, accepted, widely accepted economic explanation for monogamy. And it, it's predicated on this foundation that men want multiple partners and women don't get to have them. Right. Well, why not? Right. Well, and there's a whole, you know, the whole idea that women don't want them. Yeah. And in fact, it was, I had a completely bizarre conversation with a friend of mine when I came out to her a few years ago. And this was someone... I had gone to grad school with, and we'd studied we'd studied evolutionary biology together, and and I you know told her about um, my uh, my husband and his two relationships, and um, at the time I had no other relationships, but I ended one recently, and about that, and she just like she was like, well, you know, um, you you you'll just inevitably feel jealous because really you know you're wired to to like you need to have one partner so that he can provide resources for you and and just you know and I'm like you're she's telling me stuff that is just so about what I feel right. and what I want that is just so completely opposite from my lived experience and I'm trying to say yeah but I'm doing this this is real and I don't feel that and I feel this and she's like no no you can't feel that because you have to feel this because evolutionary bio- or evolutionary psychology and it was just like it was surreal it's like, it's like telling a gay guy he's not really gay mm-hmm. because he wants to have babies 
because mm-hmm. he's a replicating primate. Right. Like, hello, yeah. <laughs> I'm gay. Leave me alone. Yeah. Maybe he does want to have babies. Yeah, maybe he gay. does, and yeah. he does. You know, and he doesn't yeah. care if they're biologically his, yeah. whatever. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the way people come at you with their theory, mm-hmm. and like your experience can't possibly be real because it undermines my theory. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what what trumps what here in yeah. this conversation? So you, you mentioned coming out. Mm-hmm. Do you, is are there similarities between being polyamorous and being gay? Do you think? So I, I I'm cautious answering that question because As I don't think be. I don't think <laughs> that polyamorous people face anywhere near the kind of discrimination right. that um, that uh, lesbian and gay people face. What I can say is, you know, when we were on the book tour and people would ask us questions about coming out and we would we would talk about some of the advice that we give in the book about coming out, we talk about our own experiences. Um, people in the audience um, who were uh, who were lesbians or gay or, you know, anywhere else in the alphabet soup um, would say that sounds a lot like our experience. That sounds right. a lot like advice given to uh, lesbian and gay people when they're coming out. Um, so I do think that um, while the experiences are, are not the same, there are some elements that are similar, um, and certainly the advice about coming out is also similar. Um, but for example, we don't face generally the risk of violence um, right. for, being, for being out. Uh, we don't risk the same level of um, in most communities, um, the same level of social ostracism, right? And things like that. But you could lose a job. Mm-hmm. You could have serious issues with child. Yes. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Child, uh, child custody. 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 Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, th- those are huge life sa- yeah. life changing. Uh, you're right. There, there's not that sort of visibility. There's no mm-hmm. Stonewall riot mm-hmm. associated. But do you feel that, in a way, the gay rights movement sort of opened the way for polyamory to be accepted? In, hmm, that's, a, that's a complicated question. In a lot of ways, yes, because we have a lot to thank for the, the gay and lesbian community for, because in a lot, they have really sort of shown society that there's more than one right way to live. Right. That people who don't have sex with other people in the way you want them to are not intrinsically evil. Right. And yes, so that is actually huge and they have paved the way for a lot of other subcultures to be able to come out and say, you know, yes, we exist and we are not evil, we are not monsters, we are not demons. Um, at the same time, Historically, uh, at least polygyny, men married to multiple women, has pretty much always been a thing in a lot of cultures. So it's something that we're more socially aware of. And even though our society does not endorse that, there's still this thing where a guy with a bunch of women is like a stud he's looked up to in ways that like men who like to have sex with other men are not looked up to, are not perceived right. as being studs. Right. Yeah, players more of a celebrated kind of. And of course, I have to mention the flip side of that, which is slut shaming yes. for women, which yeah. you see very much in like the comments of articles about polyamory. There's a huge amount of misogyny that uh, that comes out in the way that that polyamorous women are treated differently. What do you think? What's generating that? A lot it, of men out there hate women. Is it coming from men primarily? You know, I ha- I. I 
I can't say that I took note of the mm. the genders of the internet commenters so I, much. I mean, I've seen women it come from both. Yeah, yeah, I've I seen mean, it come from both. Even like when Cassie and I were working on Sex at Dawn, just not advocating polyamory or anything, just the the fact that we were questioning the primacy of monogamy as the you know sort of default mm-hmm. made a lot of people really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and men and women for different reasons, I think. The women, I mean, I just noticed we stopped getting invited to certain dinner parties, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I've had that experience yep. as well. But you get yeah. invited to other ones, which yeah. are much more fun anyway, yeah. so yes. who cares? But yeah, I mean, they're definitely like people who's, uh, maybe you guys have found this, Do you, you can sort of sense if somebody's relationship has serious issues and you being in the room just sort of accentuates it. Mm-hmm. Dr. Chef has written about what she calls fear of the polyamorous possibility. Uh-huh. So just the but You idea- haven't read her book, but you know everything she wrote. <laughs> well, I, I, I read her blog and I and I, I know her and I've seen her speak oh, okay. and been to workshops she's given. So, so no um, need to read the damn book. Well, I will Jeez. get to it. <laughs> I've, I've been rather busy over the last year and a half. Um, but um, so the fear of the polyamorous possibility is this idea that just by knowing that uh, polyamory exists, it somehow threatens my monogamy, sure. right? It's like, well, maybe my partner will want that. Maybe mm-hmm. my partner will find this other person attractive. Right. This upsets the the stability of of our default assumptions somehow. And actually, uh, you have a good story about that with your ex business partner. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of stories about that. Um, I'm not sure which one you're thinking about. Uh, the. <laughs> oh, that story! Wow, that, yes. that was an interesting moment, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. You didn't miss anything, anything visual there. She just, uh, Eve just looked at him and said the, and held his eyes, and some some weird thing happened, and suddenly Franklin knew what she was talking about. Before yes. you tell, I'll give you a second to think about whether you want to tell that story or not, because I've I've been known to promise people I go back and edit something out and then forget. <laughs> You know, so I don't. I don't want to do that. Um, you, when you were saying that, what, what was the phrase? The the possibility Fear of the polyamorous possibility. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. What that made me think of, and maybe it's just because I'm a, you know, whatever I am. But it made me think of the way socialism is trashed in American culture, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. you know, communist. You know, there's no sort of serious discussion of the potential advantages of socialism or the upsides or the it's always this sort of you know demonized absolutely unacceptable decent people don't even talk about it mm-hmm. uh possibility because that option makes you question the sort of fundamental basis of mm-hmm. capitalism right and when I was writing Sex at Dawn, I, and also in the response to it, I think a lot of it sort of lines up the same way. It's people who are who think the idea of sharing is somehow absurd, mm-hmm. right? Because their fundamental assumptions of human nature is me first, fuck everybody else. You know, I'm here to hoard, 
and take care of myself and my DNA's telling me to do that, right? Which is William Hal which I thought it was mm-hmm. so interesting that George Price ended up giving everything away and mm-hmm. dying penniless, right? One of the main guys who came up with this way of thinking, mm-hmm. his own life is a you know a, an argument of against Ayn Rand. It. Yeah, exactly. Ayn Rand. Yeah, I mean that sort of right wing political Ayn Randian view of life um, finds I guess what I'm trying to say is polyamory is deeply political, mm. whether we be. want it to be or not. The way people relate to each other on a sexual and romantic level is deeply political, so I don't think there's any getting around that. Right. Well, and also we're talking about resource distribution, right? If you're talking about people who have serious intimacy with one another, mm-hmm. more than two, then you're talking about potentially having children, ownership of property. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, dividing, you know, having one car divided among four adults instead of four cars. Oh, my God, that's un-American. And then you have to you face the, the reality that so many of our political and economic structures are designed to favor couples. And designed that, to favor consumption, I would argue. And well, coupledom and, is one way of generating that. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, look at health insurance in the United States, yeah. for example. Um, oh, God. <laughs> you know, so, so one there. of the questions that comes up is, well, you know, if you were to allow multiple marriages, does that mean that employers would have to cover, cover multiple partners and right. their health insurance policy? Um, thing, health insurance, immigration is another one. Um, you sure. know, I have... Um, I am married. Uh, that's how I have Canadian citizenship is through my Canadian husband. Um, I would love to give Franklin the opportunity to move to Canada, but I can't um, because I'm married. Um, and I'm only allowed to give that, we're only allowed to extend that option to one other person. Um, so all of those sorts of things come under um, come under scrutiny. And I think you have to start looking at, well, if you have a society where people are able to make commitments to more than one person and potentially lifelong commitments, um, you have to look at the assumption that these benefits are automatically extended to couples and only to couples. I mean, a single person doesn't get to bring someone into Canada as an immigrant. So, you know, what exactly is the rationale for that for that law? Um, you know, I'm not saying that it shouldn't exist, but we need to think about it. And I think it... It's a good argument for people who care about the ability to have relationships freely uh, to think about the political implications of those choices. Right. And what it means, you know, maybe it means that everyone should have health insurance, right? To, you know, to get rid of that. Now you're just a radical. I know, thrower. right? Yeah. Well, I'm a Canadian. Everyone should have health insurance. Oh my God! The next thing you know, you, you're going to say that everybody should be treated decently, and we should all like be respectful to each other. Oh, hey, you're what trying to Frenchify with us. You? Yeah. <laughs> I love I love that argument. Like some you know trailer park redneck in in Alabama, you know, arguing bitching about Obama trying to Frenchify America. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, wow, that's one I hadn't heard. Oh, man. And I, I was born in a trailer park, so I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, man, if anyone had ever been to France, mm-hmm. my God. I, I mean, had an orgy in France. Let's hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, on his blog. Yes. Yeah, so, Talk um, about it. Multi-chapter on his blog. Yes, yeah. oh, it's true. Right. So I, was, uh, I have a partner who lives in the UK, which is... Awkward for you know long dis- there's long distance relationships and then there's multi continent relationships, and uh, I went out to to visit her and getting through UK customs that was a whole story by itself. Wow, they did not like me- the idea of letting me into the country, and 
she was having a party with the entire extended network of you know poly people in her network out in the UK. So there were about 22 of us, and um, they rented a old, well, I say medieval castle. I think technically it was like early Renaissance castle, but they rented this old medieval castle, and uh, we took it over for a week. And so there are 22 polyamorous people all in the same general network in a castle in the south of France for a week. It was a really good time. Wow. We had a blast. We did break a bed. I felt a little bad about that. Well, that sounds like the recording of Exile on Main Street. <clears throat> you know, that the Rolling Stones rented a castle in the south of France and just hung out there. Mm. Uh, I imagine there were some orgies happening. <laughs> I imagine they probably broke a bed or two, too. <laughs> they yeah. did, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, too bad. Why wouldn't they let you into the country? Did they know you had an orgy in your no, future? No, I did something really, really dumb. Uh, um, I got up to customs, and I've got my passport out, and I'm all, you know, excited about being there. And I go up to the customs guy, and he's like, why are you coming into the country? And I'm like, oh, to visit my girlfriend. And he gave me the look, and he gave me the sigh, and then... 45 minutes of questions later, how long have you known each other? How did you meet? What do you do for a living? What does she do for a living? How much money are you bringing into the country? Do you have a ticket back out of the country? Are you planning to get married? How long has this relationship been going on? Right. Uh, what is her um, nationality? What is her country of origin? Does she travel outside of the country? You know, just like seriously, 45 minutes, and then he finally sort of reluctantly lets me in but only after I actually show him the plane tickets back. Yeah. Yeah, that, I've run into that one a few times. I had a, a girlfriend um, from Andorra, actually, uh, come to visit me in San Francisco. And she said, yeah, I'm here to visit my boyfriend. And in the back yep. room, and they ran her. And I'm standing in the airport waiting, and mm -hmm. everyone's off the flight except her. And, oh, my God, what's happening? And finally she came out and, you know, tears and everything. The guy kept her in there for an hour asking her all these same kind of questions you're talking about. And then at the end, here's the kicker. He gives her his business card with his personal phone number on the back and said, hey, if things don't work out with your boyfriend, give me a call. Creepy. Yeah. Wow. His boss got a letter from me yeah. with the photocopy of this guy's business card front yeah. and back. And um, then I got a letter saying he no longer worked there. Wow. Good. So, yeah, I mean, you don't take a woman and, you know, interrogate her and then ask her out, you yeah. asshole. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway, uh, what were we talking about? The politics? The Oh, the, the, the so we've been going almost an hour and a half here, so I don't want to keep you guys all day. But what, uh, how, where is this going? Are you going to write more about this? Are you going to move on to other issues or... Um, well, Franklin's writing his memoir right now, so right. that's the next major mm -hmm. major. And Franklin, your day job is what? High tech guy. Um, that's a complicated question too. By the way, so. you I see on your author thing on Amazon, you've got those rabbit ears. Do you yes. wear these all the time? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, this is your. These, these were a gift from um, my UK partner. And, ah. you know, if you have a partner who gives you a ring, like this one, you know, you wear it. If you have a partner who gives you a necklace, you wear it. Well, uh -huh. she gave me bunny ears, so, yeah. Anyone ever give you a butt plug? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm not wearing it. Uh, see? see, there's always an exception. <laughs> there is always an exception, yeah. I, I imagine that would get a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> On the bus. 
Uh, <laughs> that, ooh, that makes the eyes water. Yeah. Um, okay, so your day job's uh, hard to describe. So don't worry, I've had bank robbers on. He this writes show. porn and programs sex games. There you go. I write porn. I program sex games. I do electronics. I do computer security. Um, I do web programming. And what else do I do? You do graphics. I remember seeing that amazing chart you did of the different types of non-monogamous relationships. I need to make that into a poster. I keep yeah, getting you people do. saying, "Hey, where's the poster?" I'm Dude, like, uh, I, it would be on this wall right here if it were i mean i i didn't even know that was you somebody like tweeted it at me or sent it to me or something and i just thought that's amazing and i and i think your name wasn't on it or maybe it was i don't know but anyway i used it in my presentations i started i just you know worked it into the presentations because and the line is you know for people who say you know when you talk about polyamory and people say well life's not that simple you're like, oh, simple. Here, here's what's here's simple. Take a look at this. Yeah, there are a lot of ways to do non-monogamy. There are a lot of them. <laughs> None um, of them are simple. Yeah, the first time I was in the UK, um, my partner actually took me to this uh, sexology lecture that was going on at, um, I want to say Cambridge, maybe one of the universities there. And so we're at the lecture, and the lecturer is talking about you know the various types of human sexual relationships, and there's that. That diagram up on the wall. Oh, really? I'm like, oh, wow. Cool. Academics are citing me now. Was your name included somewhere? Yeah. Oh, good. All right. Yeah, cool. and then yeah, afterwards, it's, it's she's like, you know, thing. this is the guy who did that thing, and that this, you know, this professor is like, oh my god, that's so awesome. I'm like, oh wow, hi. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So Franklin and I have have talked about following up more than two with another book uh, about ethics, that's just straight up about uh, relationship ethics, community ethics, um, uh, consent. We have it. It's a very nebulous book right now mm. in our in our minds. But um, so but we, maybe there will 2016? be more. You're gonna go out to the cabin for this one. We might. We might. Yeah, that seems to be where we're most productive. Yeah, it's all the garden gnomes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they collect garden gnomes. There are hundreds of them. At oh, their really? Place. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's a little freaky. Yeah, we we wrote about them in the book, and everybody thinks we're joking. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a, a photo um, photo album. Yeah, I'm online. actually going to do a garden yes. gnome photo album on our on the More Than Two Facebook page when we go back. Ah, uh, nice. So. Okay, let's let's talk about where people can see your work. Where can people see that poster first of all? Uh, at www. Poster to be yes zero mag x e r o m a g dot com is for various historical reasons my main website. There is a sexual informatics section of that site, and it's got like, it's got the map of non-monogamy. It's got the map of human sexuality. That was a fun one to do because there was this woman. Um, what was her name? Something Gates, and she wanted to do a table of all of the fetishes. So she did this table and had like fifteen things on it. And I saw this, and I'm like, wow, you're not really quite grasping the full range of imagination that people have. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to do a table with all of the fetishes that I'm aware of on it. And I started working on it. And then I was like, you know what, this would be a really cool map, like a, a you know, a physical map of a continent. So that's how that thing came to be. Um, and there's also a, a, a breakdown in statistical analysis of emails I get from my porn. That was a little. That was fun to do too. I really enjoyed doing that one. So there's all kinds of fun. This stuff is reader like response to what you've written. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> do you write as a, a male or female? Um, I write BDSM porn under a male pseudonym. Oh, okay. And I get a lot of email from the porn, and it's not always quite the sort of email you would expect. 
Um, I get a lot more emails from women than from men. Apparently, a lot more women are into at least written BDSM erotica. I don't know about written erotica generally. And I get emails from men, and they're like, oh, my God, you know, you must be such a pervert. How could you be so disrespectful to women and write about these things? And I get emails from women that are like, wow, this is awesome. And, you know, they send me the number of orgasms they had reading my story, which I think is kind of the the female equivalent of the male unsolicited cock shot. (laughs) But they're always like, and, yeah, you could take it even farther. You could be even more extreme, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. I have to say my favorite reader response, uh, at least on a certain level, is the women who said I had to stop and masturbate while reading Sex at Dawn. Wow. I didn't see. I mean, if you're writing porn, you sort of hope that's going to, you know, but Sex at Dawn, it never occurred to me that anyone other than me was stopping to masturbate. (laughs) (laughs) And not a single man has ever written to say, hey, man, love the book. Had to stop and jerk <laughs> off every 10 pages. Not one. Wow. <laughs> but have you yeah. gotten any unsolicited cock shots from it? <laughs> no, none. None. It just doesn't affect men the same way. Yeah. Why do men do that? What is the thing with the unsolicited cock shot? What is that? Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I think, I think men, or boys anyway, are so... It's kind of like what we were saying earlier. You're talking about, you know, the, your this person who may or may not want to be with you is a living, viable person who makes their own decisions and has their own interests and all that. And and, and just sort of getting that is hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for a lot of boys to understand that no one else is as fascinated with their penis as they are. <laughs> I think, or ever will be. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think when it's grown men doing it, I often think it's it's boundary testing. It's, hmm. you know, let's see how she responds to to this little boundary violation. And then, um, you know, very often uh, men will 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 do that. They'll, they'll sort of test small boundary violations. And yeah. if women are polite or laugh it off or kind of let that slide, then it means that they can often push further than that. So I actually t- see the unsolicited cock shot as kind of a red flag that this is someone who yeah, that's, is kind of into pushing boundaries. Mm. So. It seems like beyond pushing boundaries, though, it's mm-hmm. ignoring them completely, yeah. right? I but, mean, if you, but if you use that as a selection tool, you know, the women who, um, who respond to that or who, you know, maybe are like, ew, but still engage in conversation with you, right. then you know that you found a woman who is going to allow her boundaries to be ignored and continue right. to engage with you. Right. And I don't think that that's going on consciously at any level, but I do think that that's yeah. a form of selecting for, for someone who's going to let you push boundaries. There's some sort of magical belief in the penis, too, I think, at least among men. I don't know that women hmm. believe in this magic. But, I mean, mm-hmm. did you ever read, talk about porn? There's like a classic of porn. It's called My Secret History. I have never seen that one. It's like seventeen no. hundreds, I think, is some British nobleman who recorded all his exploits with the maids and prostitutes and you know everybody. And one of the things that recurs throughout that book is he'll get someone alone and whip out his dick. And as soon as he whips out his dick, suddenly she's no longer able to resist, and and the whole thing goes down. 
And there's hey, like, uh, all right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Has he ever met any women? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but see, I mean, you read the book, and first of all, who knows how much of it's true? Secondly, this is a rich guy in 1700s Britain, you know, so these women would lose their jobs and be living in the street probably if they didn't submit to him. Um, so there's a lot of power plays and all sorts of weirdness going on. Um, but it just it just reminded me, and then you see all these you know phallus symbols throughout mm-hmm. cultures, and you know yeah. there is this sort of sense of the magical power of the prick, you know. Well, yeah. Speaking of the the phallus symbols, um, so she and I on the book tour we stopped in Las Vegas and we went to the um, the museum, the Erotic Heritage Museum there, and they advertised that they have the world's largest collection, which I believe them. They're probably right of these. Um, like prehistoric and ancient and very old um, carved stone phalluses mm. and, you know, these really, really old dildos and this whole thing. And wow, you know, you're like 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, people were carving these, what I can only describe as proto-Hello Kitty vib- uh, um, dildos out of granite. And we were seeing all of these things on these glass display cases, which was awesome. There was actually a Chinese cat dildo. Yes. and it From like 2,000 years ago. Really? And it yeah. looked very Hello Kitty. It was amazing. So she and I are in the van and we're heading out of there and we're like, I know. I wonder if we could start a business making replicas of genuine antique or um, historical oh. dildos. And, you know, find like a either um, carve them out of stone or find a cast stone material that's biocompatible and safe and like have an anthropologist on staff who would curate the collection and actually could write the history of, you know, each one of these replicas. And I wonder if people would go for that. So that's one of the things we're investigating. Yeah, the latest company we started is actually a sex toy company. Oh. And it's um, primarily to make high-tech sex toys, but the the antique replicas might be a sideline mm-hmm. of that. When you could even like have a set, you know, you could have like the, the Venus of Willendorf replica mm-hmm. along with the dildo replica. Oh, you know? yeah. The his and her collection. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I know some people who I'd, I'd get that for a Christmas gift. Yeah. So, so we, um, we have actually contacted a, uh, an anthropologist who specializes in this area of research and, you know, see if she'd be interested in curating a collection like this. That's a good idea. Keep me posted on that one. Yeah. So um, the book. Yeah. Oh, um, back to the book. <laughs> oh, that's right. Back we did to a the book. book. Yeah. Um, you were asking about you know where oh, people we, can find our stuff. So, so um, um, Franklin's polyamory website, which has been running now for uh, close to twenty years, is more than two dot com. Um, you can find information about the book, including ordering information at more than two dot com slash book. And then there's a blog there where Franklin and I both write. So the, mm-hmm. the website is all Franklin's writing, and the blog is, is both of us plus the occasional guest post. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming, guys. Oh, it was awesome. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah. Uh, go out and buy more than two. It's great. You'll enjoy it. It's, a kin- it's on Kindle as well, right? Yes. yes. It's on Kindle, and uh, there's also an EPUB available on Kobo, iTunes, Smashwords. And we're making a... Um an audiobook. I get more emails about that than anything else. I got one on my way out here. I got an email from somebody saying, "Hey, are you ever going to do an audiobook?" Yes, we are doing an audiobook. We Good. have a uh, an editor. We have somebody recording it. She's about a third of the way done uh, with the reading. So, hopefully, in the spring. So yep. in the spring. Okay, great. Thanks for joining me. He said, "Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel." 
say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Dance into the ground.